Hey everyone, this is Nate Scott, and this is the For the Win Podcast, your home to everything that is buzzing in the world of sports. As I said earlier this week, this is going to be my final time hosting the, the podcast. This is a little bittersweet, but mostly sweet. And to say goodbye, I, I thought I'd bring on the guy who's been my guest probably more than anyone else, my colleague, my good friend, Luke Curtinine. What's up, man? Nate, I think you're just having me on this podcast to force me to talk to you because I'm still, I'm still very <laughs> mad. I'm still, I'm still refusing to talk to you, but I guess I have to play nice now. Exactly. You're just doing it for the product. You're doing it for the brand, and I get someone to talk to on my last day. So I'm, and I get to hear that those soothing British tones uh, just one more time, and, and I appreciate that. Yeah, this podcast about to take a wild direction though in the post Nate Scott era, but um, yeah, but, but may, maybe we'll have you back on as a guest if you play your cards oh, right. There we go. Just yeah, just bring me on every week. We'll just keep we'll keep it running. Just Ted can ask me questions instead of the other way around. Uh, anyway, no real set agenda this week. I just I, I wanted to have you on just because we like the same stuff. So I figured we'd talk a little bit about Tiger Woods, a little bit about the Premier League. Maybe we'll touch on MLS Cup final this Saturday, which I know you're you're losing sleep over. You're so excited about. Um, so excited. I'll yeah. Do, I'll do I'll do most of the talking in that in that segment. And yeah, then we'll just say goodbye and we'll, we'll go off into the sunset. So first off, Tiger, Tigre, it's what, what, what's your, what's your excitement level at? Where are you at with him? Oh man, I am so, so excited. Like, so (laughs) (laughs) I, I think like, and you know, what's fun is that I feel like Tiger has hit the point where um, you know, he, he had sort of bottomed out so much that even like the people who didn't really like Tiger at his peak are now in this mode where they're thinking like, yeah, you know, wouldn't it be kind of nice to see him come back at least a little bit? You know, it's so clear that golf has moved on from the Tiger era. But like now that we've sort of the industry has closure on that sort of uh, section of history that now it can kind of look at Tiger and appreciate him for this kind of like past great and hope he uh, gives us one more sort of flash of inspiration. And this is something that I think you and I have both been writing about for years now, which seems insane, but it's been, you know, years, um, is our desire for us to get there with Tiger and that we could get to a place where it wasn't that we needed him to win every week because those days were obviously gone. But to get to a place where the golf world could sort of accept the fact that, you know, he's going to have some good days and some bad days. And then every, you know, every couple of months he'll be in contention on a Sunday and that that'll be enough for us. And I think at least the way this feels like we're there, like this is this is seems like where, you know, no one expects him to win every week. And that exactly. sort of freed him up to be what he is at this point, which is still a very good golfer who, you know, isn't quite the best in the world anymore. Exactly. And, you know, it's one of these things, too, where, like, when Tiger was at his peak, it was just, I mean, it's hard to overstate, like, how dominant he was in a really strong era of golf, too. I mean, there were these bets going on in Vegas where you would say Tiger against the field and Tiger would be the favorite, Mm -hmm. you know, like you would be stupid if you didn't pick Tiger in that bet. And so like, it was just so absurdly dominant in a, in a sport that's kind of designed specifically to, to prevent people from being dominant. Um, it took a while for golf to look at Tiger Woods and think like, he's not going to be that every single week anymore. Um, but now it's at the point where if Tiger Woods just kind of stays healthy, if hangs around, if he hangs around, then he can, 
definitely pop into contention and make things interesting at times, a bit like Phil Mickelson does. You know, it's a it's a little like if you, um, or, you know, we see it in soccer all the time. Like the reason why you keep a sort of 37-year-old, you know, Filippo Inzaghi on your team is because the dude's a poacher. And in the final 10 minutes of a game when it's tied and you kind of need one, you need one person to snatch a goal, you throw on the old wily poacher and, and he, he could do it for you. Um, and that's, I think, where Tiger Woods is right now. And that's what's, and, and it's great. And I think we saw in that, what was it called, the World Hero Championship? Yes, uh, the Hero World Championship. Hero World. Sorry, I can't keep it track. <laughs> Down in the Bahamas, uh, with him, he was, you know, his driver was all over the place. He he couldn't really locate the fairways on a couple of the days. A couple of the days, it was better. His irons are still as good as anyone. I mean, he was stiff in them. And granted, yes, we can say, you know, the greens weren't whatever, whatever, whatever. People can get upset. And I guess the conditions were somewhat easy. But, you know, he was hitting the ball off when he got it on the fairway. He was hitting it off the fairway as well as anyone. And as long as he's not, you know, hurting himself, trying to smash the ball off the green and can keep the ball in play, I think, you know, he's he's not going to have the advantage he once had. He You know, he was once... Dustin Johnson and Jordan Spieth rolled up into one sort of superhero. That's not going to happen anymore. But if he can keep the ball on the green and, and, and stick his irons like that and make a few putts, like he can be in contention. And that's great. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I think, too, um, th- this is one thing that people forget about Tiger Woods. I mean, at his peak, he was so good from tee to green. But in his so as most recently as 2013, which was his kind of consensus last full season where he was healthy and he actually won – um, I believe he won three times that season and one yeah. player of the year. He was the best iron player on tour with his long to mid-range irons. Like, yep. that is that is a enviable stat, to say the least. And um, and that's the thing. Like, we were always going to see rust with Tiger when he, come, when he came back. I kind of thought we would see a little bit more of it. But, you know, he had a few shaky short, you know, a few shaky chips and things. And his driver was a little erratic. But that's all fine. The dude hasn't played competitive golf in a year. Yep. Um, if that didn't happen, it would have been bizarre. But uh, I think what we saw from Tiger is not only did he stay healthy, which is like priority number one, but he, as you said, with his irons especially, like he showed some serious signs that um, that the, 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 this this may not be a sort of flash in the pan, like, uh, oh, he hit it good this week. Like the, the fundamentals are there. I'm excited. I think, you know, he, he if he can stay healthy, God willing – um, I think he's reached a better point in his career where he can, you know, be 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 a badass on the course and and do what he does. And if he doesn't win, that's fine too. And he can come back. He just seems like in a better place mentally. And I know I'm projecting, but uh, I just feel like the Ryder Cup was great for him, and him going there and and seeing how much the young guys wanted him back, and being a part of a team and and sort of settling into that role where he. You know, he's not the most feared guy. He's not he's not the the dominant kind of the man on tour anymore, but he's still someone everyone loves and respects and admires and and wants there. And I think that was I think it was important for him. I think so too. And you know, I think it's interesting with um you see it across all sports, but you you see it with Tiger too. Is that Tiger was essentially uh like a he was sort of bred himself to be this like ruthless winner, right? Like I mean from he grew up with uh, the, the sort of the cliche story of he grew up with Jack Nicklaus's record on his walls. He would stay out after school and practice and practice. And he, his whole life was designed around winning at golf. And 
he's he's now come to the point where as he's gotten a little older, as he's gotten kids, which has really changed his life in a lot of ways and his perspective, that he's starting to realize that like I'm not gonna win every week anymore. But that's that's kind of okay. Like just because I'm not on the Ryder Cup team doesn't mean I don't want to be a part of it somehow. So you're starting to see this Tiger where he's just got a little bit more perspective and he's starting to realize that like I kind of want to be playing golf not because I want to try to win and that's it, but because I want to try to win. But I also want to be with my friends and um, it also kind of gives me meaning. And it's it, it's it seems like a basic sort of skill to a lot of well-adjusted like adults, but when you look at professional athletes, like they're not always well adjusted. They're they're a different breed in a lot of ways. And Tiger Woods is sort of coming to grips with this, what it means just to kind of be happy. And the other thing, though, is, you know, you will hear some kind of, not backlash, but this idea that by sacrificing that killer instinct, he's going to somewhat diminish the person he is. That's never leaving Tiger. He is who he is. You know, the... If it comes down to Sunday and Tiger's tied with Henrik Stenson and they're playing together on the last 18 you, and, you, and he hits a, like, 15-footer, he's going to stare Henrik Stenson down because that's just, that's just part of who he is, you know? Like, that is – he lives for that. He wants that more than anything. And, and, and I think that, that that's not going to go away. And, and having a little more perspective is great and I think needed for him and being willing to accept the game as it is and his body for what it is and not trying to fight through it or push it beyond what's reasonable for it at his age. That's all great, but I still think on, you know, on Sunday, he's still Tiger. He still showed up on his first day back wearing all black, you know, like he, that's always going to be a part of him. It's like Michael Jordan. That was all, you know, even when Jordan was at, in Washington and couldn't really move, and the team wasn't that great. When people would call him out one on one, he, you know, he wanted to kill them, and and he could still. He, he could kind of dig deep, and I I think that's going to be true for Tiger too. So, I'm excited. I'm excited for this next stage. Yeah, exactly. And it's worth keeping in mind too that like part of the reason why the whole Tiger scandal back in whenever it was 2010 or something was such a big deal is because everyone thought Tiger was invincible. Um, in that in that moment where this sort of came to be, every golfer on tour everybody in the world realized that tiger woods wasn't a robot you know so like that killer instinct as you said is going to be there but like this isn't the shift where people realize that tiger woods isn't a isn't a winning machine anymore you know that transition has been made already like um but the the root of tiger woods is like innate desire to to win and crush the competition and to stare down henrik stenson and all these things like that's that's that was there and it's always going to be there even long after he retires. I think. Not trying to call it Henrik Stenson. We love you, Henrik Stenson. Sort <laughs> of. I did. I did call him out in my my column where I got excited about Tiger Woods, which <laughs> which was written in all caps, and I was very mean to him and I think Keegan Bradley. And I'm sorry about that, guys. Um, I'm sure, I know. I'm sure they're losing <laughs> sleep over. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The, the, and they're millions of dollars in their professional golf life. They're they're losing sleep over me semi sliding them in a blog. Anyway, want to talk about Chelsea and Man United? But before we do, uh, my last little plug here for one of our great sponsors, uh, Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans proudly supports the For the Win podcast. Rocket Mortgage brings the mortgage approval process into the 21st century. Fast, powerful, and completely online, Rocket Mortgage has taken all the complicated, time-consuming parts of applying for a mortgage out of the equation. Hate searching through stacks of old files and paperwork? 
With Rocket Mortgage, you can easily share your bank statements and pay stubs at the touch of a button, helping you get approved in minutes for a custom mortgage solution that's been tailored to your unique financial situation. Even better, with Rocket Mortgage, you can do all this on your phone or tablet. It's a quick online process that you can manage from the convenience of your couch. So if you're looking to refinance your mortgage or buy a home, check out Rocket Mortgage today at quickenloans.com slash FTW. Again, it's quickenloans.com slash FTW. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states. NMLSconsumeraccess.org, number 3030. Chelsea. Um, you're going to win the league. This oh, is... I, think, I think so, too. I think so, Ooh, too. You're not even worried about jinxing it. I thought, you would, even... I thought you'd get mad at me for, for saying that. I can no, not at all. I don't believe in jinxes. I do think Chelsea are going to win the league. Um, I think I can see I, I can see a scenario in which it unravels, and that scenario. Tell me if you disagree. Um, is something along the lines of Pep's team learning how to defend just a little bit, <laughs> uh, and then sort of them going on this run. Uh, Ingolo Kante just getting injured or tired. Um, maybe a few other play- maybe Hazard drops off a little bit. Diego Costa regresses a touch. You know, normal things start happening. Plus an injury to like Ingolo Kante, and then suddenly Chelsea just kind of cruise in at third place or second place or something. But uh, I, I there's, there hasn't been much evidence of that <laughs> that about to happen. And the, and we talk about this a lot, but. When you're not in Europe and you don't have to play these midweek games, like you don't have to worry as much about this. You can get into this rhythm of just constantly playing the same players in the same system and being well rested. And it's such a huge asset in so many ways. And when you have uh, give that asset to a team like Chelsea, who uh, have a lot of good players, I think you know they can go on these runs. I mean, Leicester City can go on these runs in those kind of situations. Yeah. And Chelsea certainly can. I just. I'm I'm continually blown away by this team. Just everything they've done, how quickly they did it. And we've talked about this before, but before the season, you and I were saying, you know, Chelsea, we, we like what they're doing there. It sort of makes sense. It'll take a season. They had such a bad year last year. They got to regain their confidence. And fi- it was like, oh, no, it took like 20 minutes. <laughs> it was like, oh, okay, this team is – absolutely ready to go. Conte came in and it was almost like he didn't quite believe that the team would be able to adapt as quickly to his preferred 3-4-3 system. He, if you remember, what game did he finally make the switch? Was it the third or fourth game? Yeah, I believe it was the second half against Arsenal or something. Where yeah. Like, or it was, it was something, I can't remember the exact game either, but um, but yeah, you know, he was messing around with these systems trying to fit the players, and he goes, you know what, this isn't working. We need an extra man at the back to show up the defense, and we're going to go to my favorite system. And then it's just, I, we haven't lost in the league since he made that switch. Yeah, and, it, and it, it's such an unbelievable... Because, you know, we were talking, and when he, when he brought in Conte, and when he brought in Louise, we sort of said, oh, well, this is sort of all making sense now. It all it seems to be fitting together exactly right. Of course, those were the things Chelsea needed. They needed, well, every team in the world needs Conte, because you need a guy who can run a marathon every game and win every tackle, which he can. And then... For the system to work, you need a, a central defender who can pass, and he was also going to surround him with a couple other center backs who would kind of co- paper over Louise's uh, defensive weaknesses. 
And it almost seemed like he, he built the team he wanted, and then it was like, eh, well, you know, they played this other way. I don't know if we can really do it. And then when he finally just said, screw it, we're going to, you know, I, I play a certain way. I want to play this way, and I've signed the players to do it. Let's just do it. Now it's just like, it, 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 I, I mean, it, everything's perfect. It, it's, a, it's a perfectly built team. And you are right. If Conte goes down, things get a little hairy. If, if Hazard loses the, the touch, if Costa goes down, things get a little dicey. But right now, man, I, I don't see them losing. Yeah, and I think it was one of these situations with Conte that um, I think, first of all, he's, it's clear both with Italy at the World Cup and with Juventus before this and now Chelsea that man's a really, really good manager. Yeah. Like, really good. Um, but I think it was one of these situations too where, like, remember, Juventus, he had... What he had Arturo Vidal and uh, Pogba or Marchisio ahead of uh, your boy Pirlo. Yeah. Um, and then he had three at the back. And he had two sort of out and out strikers. And at Italy, he played the same way. And at Chelsea, he did, he, I think he could have kind of done that. He could have had like Fabregas behind Matic and Kante. Um, but the problem is that he didn't have uh, he, he didn't have like three out and out central defenders to be able to play. Um, to, to be able to play like a good ball playing ball uh, playing through the back system. Uh, he had Hazard, who's a lot more of a, a winger than a striker. So he kind of started doubting himself. And then he kind of came along this three, four, three, four, three, where he played like as a uh, full back as Pelicueta out, uh, out, out as kind of a right-sided center back. And he um, put Hazard in his preferred wing position. And it just kind of all clicked. He, and Fabregas is the man who's missing out in all of this stuff. You know, he, when, when Matic is fit, it's Matic and Kante in the cup. But I think he's okay not building his system around a sort of deep-lying central playmaker like Pirlo or Fabregas and instead just saying, hey, we're going to go with three wingers up top um, and we're going to sacrifice him out of midfield because Kante can run to compensate for that and then Hazard and Diego Costa and Pedro and William they can all have all the fun they want in the world how dare you say that about 2018 MLS MVP Cesc Fabregas I'm <laughs> <laughs> um, that's a joke I, I forget Maybe. who you were talking about with this on Twitter Kevin Kevin but, McCauley over at SV Nation yeah Kevin and it's it really is amazing because like Pirlo and Fabregas is not as old as Pirlo he's still more athletic than Pirlo and always was but like this dude will be able to pick out amazing passes for years to come. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like, the thing he can't do is tackle and run around. Um, it's not that hard. Like, you could play Fabregas alongside Kante, and he would be awesome. Um, it would, So it would be interesting if MLS just tries to go for it. Like, he could, like, just destroy so many teams. Know what my favorite thing Kante did, and, I, and I'm, I'm just sort of articulating this thought now, and I, I wish I had written it, but whatever. You can write it if you want. <laughs> I give this idea to you, Luke. What I love that Conte did was he came to a new club and he didn't do what too many managers do, which is they go and get their guys. And you and I have spoken critically about Van, Van Hall, who, who did this at Man United before Mourinho. Um, to a lesser degree, I think Mourinho's done this too. David Moyes is famous for having done this. Um, other managers do this where they go and get their guys. And it doesn't really matter if it's exactly what the team needs. They want the guys they trust that they know, and so they go and get them. You know, Mourinho trusts Ibrahimovic. He's worked with him before, and so he went and got him. Uh, you know, Moyes 
famously just brought over half the Everton team when he joined Man United, and, and Van Hall brought over Daly Blind and all this stuff. Anyway, Conte this year, he didn't go and get his guys. He knew what he needed, and he found the two best versions of what he wanted available. And he didn't go back to Italy and say, like, oh, well, I coach that guy, and, yeah, that sort of doubles up what we have, but I like him. And he was like, all right, I need a, a central midfielder who can cover a lot of ground and, and, and win every ball, and I need a, a central defender who can play, play, play with his feet. All right, it, the best available are N'Golo Conte and David Luiz. Let's do it. And I don't really know them, and whatever. We're going to do that. And, that. and I think that's harder than it looks. And it's oh, yeah. easier to just go with people you're familiar with and who you've won with before. And he didn't do that. And I, th- I think that's something that should be admired. I think so too. And then the flip side of that same the, the the flip side of that same argument is that he didn't get rid of any of the players that weren't his guys either. Yep. And that's a strategy that that's something Jose Mourinho did do at Chelsea, and it was just a terrible, terrible, terrible strategy because you know he decided he didn't like Romelu Lukaku or Kevin De Bruyne or. Um, those were the two big names that stand out. And so what happens, so he ends up selling them, kind of pushing them out the door for no real reason, even though they were very good players. And lo and behold, after a season and a half later, they're two of the best players quite literally on the planet. Like, yep. you can make an argument that they're two of the top five players on the planet. You might be stretching it a bit, but you can make that argument. And I, I think you're absolutely right. Conte didn't just look around and go and get his guys. He looked around the Chelsea squad and said, like, I'm not going to, you know, alienate a guy like Gary Cahill, who it would have been very easy to push a guy like Gary Cahill out of the door or something. Yeah. Um, but he didn't do that. You know, same with a guy like Pedro or William. Like, he kind of worked within the confines of what he had. He kind of, like, t- instead of shoving it the direction he wanted, he kind of, like, gave it a gentle push into the direction he wanted. And I think it was a, it was a really good, uh, really good idea on his part. Well, someone on Twitter, and I'm forgetting who it was, this was a couple of years ago, did the all-11 team of guys who have been pushed out by Jose Mourinho, and it was like the the single greatest team. And it's like they, they would, you know, it was it, it was oh, David Luiz and De Bruyne and, and Lukaku, and it was just like this team, and you're looking at it, and you're like, oh, my God. These are guys like, that he deemed superfluous or weren't about what he was about, and you could make an argument that that's the best 11-man club team in the world. Oh, yeah. And there's no real, like, it would, I think that this is, like, maybe a bit of a, like, and he did it with Schweinsteiger this year, although he's starting to come back in the team, like, um, and, and Mkhitaryan. Oh, yeah, yeah, Mkhitaryan, yeah, like, yeah, whatever it is. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's, there's, I would be so furious if I was an owner, because Mourinho isn't, we'll get to Mourinho, I'm sure, but, like, he's not pushing these players out for any good reason. Like, he's pushing Kevin De Bruyne out because he doesn't want to work with a 23-year-old. You know, yep. like he, he doesn't want to try to polish him up. He wants a finished product. So he sells De Bruyne and buys Pedro, who's 28 and fresh off of Barcelona. You know, like he, he sells Lukaku because rather than put in a season of work with a younger striker, he sells him and goes and gets um, Diego Costa, who I love Diego Costa. But again, like Diego's 27. Like he's not your long term option. He's your win now option. Um, so I, it, it's it's tough to stand up to Jose Mourinho when he brings you trophies. But increasingly, we're seeing that. Uh, his short-termism is starting to backfire a little bit. Where does Man United finish the season in the table? I think they're going to finish fifth. Um, yeah, I think they'll get up to fifth and it'll be relatively close. But there's just a lot of teams. Not only their point, I can't remember how many points behind, but there's just like, 
they're uh, six point, point. They're in sixth place, and they're six points behind fifth place Tottenham. Yeah, see, this, this is the problem that, like, I think if Man United were going to get into the top four, they would have had to do it at the expense of a like a Liverpool or a Chelsea or something, um, who obviously both missed out on the top four last season, but maybe an Arsenal. But the problem is, like, Liverpool and Chelsea have already essentially guaranteed that they're going to be in the Champions League next season, mm-hmm. um, unless there's some collapse. Man City going to be in. And now it just becomes between, like, Arsenal, Man United, uh, Arsenal and Man United, big two that it kind of comes down to. And it, it just, it, in Tottenham, obviously, you said, they're just like, it, and when you're six points behind already, it becomes just a bit of a, like more than a coin toss. You know, you just don't quite know what's going to happen. Like the chips are really up. They just dug themselves into such a hole early that now they have half a season to make up six points on three different teams. Like it's just tough. It's a tough uh, situation that um, I don't think they'll be able to recover from. And that's the thing, you know, Tottenham is in fifth place. They got Harry Kane back and he looks ready. I mean, they've been sort of piecing together a, an attack line in his absence and, and doing okay with it. And the fact that they're sitting in, in fifth place, you know, uh, just three points off Champions League football, and, they, and all of a sudden they've got Harry Kane back, I, I, I'm not betting against Tottenham. And frankly, you know, I thought this was the year Arsenal regressed. I forgot that Mesut Ozil is a genius and can single-handedly win games, and he and Alexis Sanchez, Alexis Sanchez. When you have those two, the two of them, that they can win a game for you because they're that good. And um, you know, I, I, I don't. Liverpool's playing beautifully. That they, they will miss Philippe Coutinho. That's a, that's a blow. Man City, I think, still figuring stuff out. They're gonna be fine. I think Man, you think Man United finishes six. And if I was them, I'd be more concerned about West Brom and Everton coming up behind them than I would about you know, catching Tottenham, which I don't think they can do. That's the thing. Like, I could see somebody arguing, like, Man United are going to finish in... They're going to get up to fourth or third. I could see that argument if, like, they were in fifth by six points. But the problem is, like, they're in in sixth by six points. So, like, if if you're six points behind fourth place Arsenal, for example, you beat Arsenal, then you're three points behind Arsenal and beat Arsenal and they lose to West Brom or something, then boom, you're tied again. Like, yeah. it's, it's, it's pretty simple. For, they, they can't rely on that. They, they have too many teams to leapfrog. Like, you can't just leapfrog one. You have to leapfrog three. And I just think it's, uh, as you said, like, this isn't even counting the sort of evidence coming up behind them who can really make things interesting. So um, I don't quite know what, I think I don't think they'd fire Mourinho if he doesn't finish fourth, but it's a pretty it's a pretty bad strategy to take like hundred million you got in the summer to essentially like scheme your way into the job by pushing Louis Van Gaal out of the position and then to bring them to a position that's probably going to be worse than what Van Gaal left behind, minus without winning the FA Cup. Like I don't know, it's 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 tough to see it happening. I just I can't believe how boring they play with that talent. How can you have Paul Pogba and Zlatan Ibrahimovic on a team and play boring soccer? How is that even possible? Like, I, I just, I can't, I mean, those are two, the two most expressive, beautiful, you know, soccer players alive. They're up there with, you know, with the, with the, with the total gift players like Messi and Ronaldo. I mean, they're, they're right there in terms of brilliance, individual brilliance, flair, creativity, and... He's got him, you know, working hard to defend the channels on defense 
and playing the ball out wide so Valencia can send in his 787th cross in a row. Like, it's just, man, like, what are they doing? Yeah, and I think you, you we, we were sort of ranting at each other about this the other day, and it, it really, it, it's amazing that Mourinho can look at a guy like Paul Pogba and look at everything he can offer both going both ways, um, you know, moving forward and moving backwards, but he is just putting him, making him play in a straitjacket. And he does this with players sometimes. Like, he did it with Ashley Cole. Like, when Ashley Cole was a left-back, he came to the Chelsea back in Mourinho's first um, first era, everyone thought he was a flop because, like, he wasn't allowed to be Ashley Cole. He wasn't allowed to bomb down the wing like Alison Fenger would let him do and putting crosses from the byline. Like, he was making him stay back and be a purely defensive left-back. And he's kind of doing something similar with Pogba. It's the same reason why he doesn't like Mkhitaryan or... Um, he didn't like Kevin De Bruyne is because like he looks at these wingers and he says, okay, um, we're going to get goals through individual off the cuff sort of magic, um, but we're not going to bank on any sort of offensive system. So you better run back and defend. And that's your first, second and third priority. And then um, if we defend, everything else will follow. And it's just such a waste of um, you don't spend $100 million on a midfielder to waste him by only making him sort of defend most of the time. You need to get more out of it. And the, the other problem is that he's sort of banking on Pogba and Ibra being so talented that he doesn't need to send up tons of support because they'll they'll deal with it. They'll They'll have the moment of genius, and he doesn't expose his defense in the process. You know, that's why... You know, Mourinho famously does not like to send his outside backs. It just it makes him uncomfortable. He doesn't like having all those numbers forward. He doesn't want to leave people exposed. When, um, you know, if you're building it up carefully, he'll be okay with maybe one going. But he's not going to send, you know, outside backs bombing up the wings like, like you will see with some people. The problem is then everything just – they just become very easy to defend because if you're not worried about overlaps – all right, well, we'll send one guy out wide to deal with the wide guy, and then we'll gum up the middle with a bunch of dudes. So if they pass it into Pogba, we've got three guys there to kick him. Or if we, we pass it into Ibrahimovic, you know, there's there's a bunch of dudes there to, to, to make his life miserable. And Mourinho's just sort of banking on Pogba and Ibra being brilliant enough to fight through that hornet's nest and, 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 and bank goals. But, like, they're only human, you know? <laughs> it's hard to do, and... You know, Messi's a genius because he's a genius, but he's also got a lot of talented players around him. And so you can't you can't just leave Neymar, can't leave Suarez. Um, with Absolutely. with Man U, it's just if you get if you pick up Pogba and if you pick up Ibra and if Mata's not in the lineup, then all right, you're set. You're good. And you've exactly. got ten guys and, to take care of it. And and it's one of these things too where like fine, Mourinho doesn't like to have his um, like, like, like the reason why people send their fullbacks forward isn't because they think it looks cool or because it's fun. It's because when you're a big team like Man United or when you're a big team like Man City, the reason why Guardiola gets his fullbacks up the field is because he needs those numbers forward in order to score a goal and in order to win because a draw simply isn't acceptable for yep. a big team like and Man to, United. Like, and to pressure and win the ball back, which Mourinho would rather just have everyone back. Exactly. And so the, it's like Mourinho's strategy would work if he was taking over like Everton and or, you know, like Leicester did last year where 
um, no one, the expectation, the default expectation is not to win all the time. Um, where so he can sit back, he can let the other team attack him, and he can nick a goal on the counter attack. But when you're Man United, like people are just gonna sh- people are just gonna sit back and defend and clog up the middle, as you said. And um, Man United won't be able to have won't be able to find a way through, or won't be able to find a way to bulldoze their way through. And every team would be like, "Cool, we just drew with Man United. Awesome result. We didn't yeah. lose." And they um, have, they have six draws already this season. And, and meanwhile, Man United fans are apoplectic because, they, uh, because they're just drawing games where they can't afford to draw games. So it's, it's like this not-lose strategy first when really, when you're a big team, you need to set out your team to win and assume the risks that then follow. Exactly. All right. Well, we've talked enough about it. MLS Cup this Saturday, Toronto, Seattle. Who are you picking? Toronto, absolutely. Um, uh, you know, I, I, admittedly, I, I'm not an MLS expert, or I'm not an MLS expert like you, but... Um, the I am not an that... MLS expert, but continue. <laughs> Disagree, but in any case, uh, the thing that, the player that really, apart from Giovinco, who's just a joy to watch and um, still sort of a scandal that he didn't get into the Italy team, is just how weird a player Josie Altador is, right? Yeah. Like, it, it's, it's, I mean, you can explain this in better detail, but he was so appalling at Sunderland, like less than appalling. He was so bad. Um, and he's got what five goals in the MLS playoffs this year. Um, or and this he's season. been unbelievable and just unbelievable. And he brings his teammates like he allowed, he creates the space for Giovinco and Bradley. And it, it just, it, it's, it's amazing to see what confidence can do to that guy because it's, it's, you'd be hard pressed to argue that he isn't one of the kind of better maybe top 20 strikers in the world when he's sort of playing like this, you know? Um, but if you just, I don't quite know what makes him tick, but it must, maybe it's a confidence thing. I don't know. Well, it's, I mean, you know, for him, I honestly think a lot of it's confidence, a lot of it's comfort, you know? Um, he went to Villarreal kind of in 2008 and never really felt comfortable there, was was loaned all over the place, never really had anything. Then he went to AZ Alkmaar in, in Belgium, and for whatever reason, they just figured it out and scored 39 goals in 67 appearances. I mean, that's stunning. Like, that's a that's a unbelievable rate at, at, a, at, a, at a top league, and, and say what you will about that league. And for me, what I've never been able to sort of identify is, is it comfort level, or is he just better in a place where... Not everyone's as strong and as fast as he is. When, 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 because he is oh, sort of an elite athlete. It's just I think, you know, for him to, to really, for him to do what he needs to do, he needs to be the strongest. He needs to be the fastest. And you can see this sometimes with other, uh, you know, big strong strikers is when, you know, things catch up with them and 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 the people are around them are you know, able to get past you holding up the ball and you can't toss the guy off, you just quite as easily or hold up with your strength, all of a sudden you're not as effective. I mean, for years I followed, at Fulham, I followed Bobby Zamora, which against the weaker teams, he looked like he should be starting for England every week because he was just so much stronger and faster than everyone and he could hold up play and he was huge and he was, and then he'd play against, against Chelsea or Man United and he would look like a lost child. 
And granted, some of that was just the, the team not getting him the ball. But Altidore, I think, is a little bit similar in that if he's if he can physically dominate, if he's if he's that much bigger and that much stronger, and if you saw in the the Montreal semifinal, he was tossing dudes off him like like rag dolls, like just they were just bouncing off him. And when he can kind of get that going, and he's he's the strongest player, and he's getting to every first ball, all of a sudden you start seeing that he starts getting in the six. All of a sudden things start happening. He starts scoring goals. He starts being confident. And the other thing is, I think he's just been gifted in Toronto in that he's playing next to Giovinco, who's a genius. And I think could walk into, you know, almost any team in the world. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. Because it's funny with soccer players. Like, occasionally you'll see this happen where, you know, I remember, like, for Chelsea fans, like, a name like Claudio Pizarro, they'll never forget. Because the dude just came over from Germany. And, well, Diego Forlan's a better example for Man United. Like, was just an assassin in Spain when he came to Man United. Just so good. And then got to Man United, was terrible for, I think, two seasons. Like, really, really terrible. And um, they sold him back to Spain, and he was awesome again. Yep. <laughs> uh, it's, it's a weird progression to see, um, to see Josie Altidore be good for the United States, right? So he's good. Yep. He, he's, been, he's been good for the United States. He was bad at Villarreal. He was amazing in Holland. At, at, uh, yeah, Alkmaar. sorry. Alkmaar's Holland, not Belgium. I'm an idiot. Sorry about he was that. A tr- oh, no, uh, he was atrocious in England, and then he's amazing at Toronto. So, like, it's almost like you can't quite say, like, ah, yes, he is, like, the Dutch league is his level, or MLS is his level. Like, I kind of think Josie Althor is only 27. Like, I think there might be one more team out there, European team, who might take a chance on him. But you're just not quite sure, like, if, say, after two years, could he then make that progression back to the Premier League? Or is he just, is Premier League just kind of off the table for him? Um, it, it, I don't quite, I, I just can't figure him out. It's, it's really perplexing. It is interesting. Anyway, um, I'm excited for the game. I'm with you. I do think that Toronto should have the edge, and yet Seattle just keeps surprising me. And I think it's going to be a closer game than people think. They've got a lot of good talented players and 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 Jordan Morris this kid he's he looks ready and he's it ain't always pretty but he gets stuff done so I'm uh I'm hopeful for a good game anyway Luke we've talked enough that's right any any final thoughts any closing thoughts for uh for your adoring fan base out there? <laughs> nah just uh just uh follow me on Twitter I'm at a Nate Scott and uh I'm around. Hit me up. Uh, and I just want to say thanks. Thanks for listening. I, I, I've been such a blast to do this. And special thanks to, to, to Jamie Mottram for giving me the opportunity to launch a podcast, even though no one at USA Today Sports had ever done that before. And they gave me the go-ahead, and we did it. And it's been a few years now, but it's just been so much fun. And I'm just I'm, – I'm so happy, and I'm gonna miss and, it. And and listeners, as uh, as Nate uh, tr- tries to be very understated about all this, um, I, I just you know it, we're all gonna miss him so much around here. And he hasn't just been the voice of For the Win; he really has, in many ways, been the soul of For the Win. So um, we're gonna miss him. It, it, it's it's heartbreaking, but uh, I think uh, I think Nate's at peace with everything, and and that's good. Like 
you know, you can't you can't keep talent like this down. So I can't wait <laughs> to see what happens. There truly is the Andrea Pirlo of the office, as I've told him oh, many times. <laughs> God, if I could only have that hair one day. <laughs> one day I will have that hair. Um, Luke, man, always a pleasure. Thanks for the kind words. And to everyone else, thanks so much for listening. Of course. Of Stay course. subscribed because Ted Berg is taking over. He's fantastic. He's super funny. Luke is going to be on the podcast extremely regularly. Um, we actually pre-recorded one with me and Luke already, and that will go live next week. So I will I will be back as a ghost of, of the For the Win podcast. But, but stay subscribed and keep subscribing. And uh, thanks so much. Luke, dude, always a pleasure, and we will talk all the time. Absolutely. I, I look forward to never talking to you again, Nate Scott. <laughs> all right, later. Later.